Hello, welcome back to the Clinical Signs Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella. This is episode four. Today I wanted to talk about how veterinarians make a diagnosis. Now I'm going to go through the step-by-step process that we are taught in school about making a diagnosis, but as a veterinarian gains more and more experience, many problems that they are presented with have a very straightforward diagnosis. And it's true sometimes, but it's not true all the time. But it's good to give you a baseline of, of what we are taught and how we actually think. So the, the process has several steps. And I think a lot of you will be familiar with some parts of this. So the first thing that you do is I'll take the example of you you call a, a veterinarian's office and you describe whatever the issues are with your animal. And of course, we talked about that in podcast three, uh, episode three uh, about clinical signs. Well, animals can have multiple clinical signs or they can only have one. So you make a call and that call then, you know, you obviously make your appointment, but what will happen is in, um, if your animal has a medical record or they'll make a medical record for your animal to get all your information, they'll make a, a medical record and then you go into an appointment book and you'll be scheduled. When you're scheduled, something will be written either on a computer or on a sheet of paper for the appointment, what we would call the CC or the chief complaint. Usually it's a very brief statement or one word or acronym, such as UTI for urinary tract infection if the owner calls and complains about, well, the dog might be squatting to pee a lot and only a little pee comes out. Or they could say difficulty urinating if an animal happens to be uh, itching and scratching itself a lot. They might just write itchy. Uh, from podcast three, we talked about lethargy. They could say, well, my, my pet's not really getting up and moving around very much, so they might just write lethargic. It's really going to depend on the practice that you're calling, but that's called the chief complaint. And that's the primary thing that the veterinarian will see when they're looking at the schedule or they're standing outside the exam room reading over the paperwork. So the chief complaint is the first thing that they'll see. So... The next step will be <clears throat> veterinarian grabs that piece of paper or a tablet, a computer tablet, or they go into the computer uh, that might be in the exam room and they'll see the chief complaint. I'll come in, I'll greet you, greet the pet, and they'll con- confirm, you know, they might confirm some of the information, but then they're going to ask you about the history. And that's, again, what we had talked about in episode three with clinical signs. I'm not going to go into everything, but they're going to ask you examples of, for example, how long has this problem been going on? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Did you notice anything happened? For example, was there trauma? Did the animal eat anything? Did you give it any medication? Have you traveled anywhere? What's the vaccine history on the animal? Um, is the animal on heartworm? It just depends on the situation because a veterinarian is not going to ask you 100 
questions on the history. They're going to try to, as quickly as possible, get down to the core of what's really going on and how long it's been going on for and if you've really done anything about that. So that's the history. So they're going to spend a little bit of time on that. And they're going to move to what's called the, the third step that I have is the physical exam. They're going to have an assistant hold on to that animal, and then they're going to do a physical exam. And physical exams can take many different, can be done via many different processes. My preference was start at the head and work to the back. Some people could start at the back and work to the head. Some people could start from the top and work down. Some people might work via a system, meaning a bodily system, such as the musculoskeletal system. They could look at the, uh, the ocular system. They could look at the musculoskeletal system, the gastrointestinal tract. First, every veterinarian has got the way that they like to perform a physical exam. Now, new veterinarians are going to be a little bit slower than a more experienced veterinarian who might do a very quick exam and then focus on the area that's causing a problem or areas that are causing problems. So they're going to complete a physical exam. When the physical exam is complete or during the physical exam, I should back up for one second. With that chief complaint, if the chief complaint is actually accurate, which I have many examples of that not really being accurate, if the chief complaint and the history are accurate and can give the veterinarian a clue, he or she already has several potential diagnoses in their head that could be causing this problem during the physical exam from the history and from the chief complaint, the veterinarian is gonna hone in on several different, what we call differential diagnosis. And this is going to be a list, generally it's going to be a short list, three, maybe four or five potential problems that the animal could be having. That differential diagnosis list is, is going to guide, number one, the, the means by which the veterinarian wants to diagnose that problem, and two, any sort of treatment that the pet might require or treatments. So the list of differential diagnosis could be very varied. It's going to depend on what the what the problems are that are a problem or problems identified by the veterinarian during the uh, history taking and the physical exam. Now, if the physical exam and the history don't really match up with the chief complaint, the veterinarian is going to be talking to you about what they're seeing and what they think is probably going on. Now, I say probably every veterinarian, it's like every physician, has a, has a bedside matter on how they're going to talk to the owner. And my, my method was always being upfront and saying, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Here's what I see. Here's what I think it might be. And at that point, once you come up with your differential diagnosis list, then you need to talk to the owner about what it's going to take to diagnose and or treat this patient. And that's also going to come up with questions from the owner, probably, and uh, hopefully a little bit more uh, detailed information from the vet but now we're hitting up to the financial component of an exam because most veterinary care is out of pocket, meaning that, number one, you're going to have to pay for everything up front. 
most veterinary insurances work off of uh, their third party. So you pay and then you get reimbursed from the insurance company. I'm sure that there are uh, pet insurances that don't work that way. Maybe that will be another. um, I'll do a podcast on pet insurance, which might be interesting because I'd like to get a little bit more information on that. But they're going to have to have a talk about costs. And this is where, as an owner, you should talk about what you what you can afford. And this is where it's helpful to have a budget in mind before you go in. Because it's going to, to potentially cause you, uh, I would say as an owner, a fair amount of distress. Because prices of, of professional care and the testing that's available to us now and some of the treatments even has sharply increased over the course of my career. So it could come as a shock to you, but the financial part needs to be worked out. Okay, so we've covered chief complaint. That's the original reason or reasons that the animal was brought in, usually a very brief uh, acronym or a brief description of what's going on. You give the history to the veterinarian. The veterinarian does a physical exam. They come up with a list of differential diagnoses. Now we come to diagnostic testing. So we've progressed down through the one, two, three, four. The fifth step is testing. Sometimes testing is going to be very simple. And sometimes it's going to be very complicated. Sometimes it's going to be able to be done at the veterinarian's office. Sometimes testing needs to be sent out. Again, every problem has a set or, or individual diagnostic tests that can be run. So if a test is done in the office, the, the doctor will get information very quickly. Obviously, if it's sent out, it's going to take a little bit of time. But the next step is diagnostics. So once you get your diagnostic test back and the doctor has their differential diagnosis list, they're going to look to what's called either rule in or rule out particular differential diagnosis, diagnoses. So by ruling in, what does that mean? That means that they're looking for test results that are guiding them, narrowing down. It's sort of like a funnel. You put in five diagnoses potential at the top, and out of the funnel, you're really hopefully trying to get one diagnosis. So you're trying to rule in one particular problem and you look at whatever your test results are and then you you winnow down you narrow down more and more and more hopefully till you get that one diagnosis and there's a point we're basically taught to look for one central problem there might be five clinical signs, but we're really trying to look down to get down to one problem. Is there really one problem? Um, And so the flip side of a rule in is a rule out. So if you're thinking that there's a particular problem or problems going on in your differential list and your tests don't confirm any of those, those are rule outs. So that's not, Ruling in and ruling out is not 100%. There is no 100%. There might be 99.99% accuracy in terms of the tests are showing this, but there's never 100%. There's no 100% accurate diagnostic test, and animals 
do not always display classic clinical signs for a particular disease, or the disease is not just fully manifested. It might be early stages of a disease. Sometimes it could be late stages of a disease. And the patient is not really expressing the total spectrum of clinical signs, or it might only have one clinical sign or two clinical signs out of a spectrum of clinical signs that that could be possible with this disease. Again, it's gonna a more experienced veterinarian will have a have a little bit better handle on uh, having seen patients possibly, probably with these reduced uh, or limited clinical signs. So you get to the rule in or rule out. Now, hopefully you've taken the five differential diagnoses, which are potential causes of the animal's problem, and you've gotten down to one, maybe two, okay? The idea would be you get your, you get your five, you, five differential diagnoses, you run your tests, you say, aha, here it is. You think this is the problem, and then you're gonna, then you're going. The veterinarian will suggest a treatment or administer treatment in uh, consultation and approval by the owner. So the final, so step six would be rule and rule out, and then seven would be the um, diagnosis itself, the definitive diagnosis. The ideal in every case is getting a or having a definitive diagnosis. That's the one thing that you can so-called hang your hat on and say, okay, I understand what's going on here, or maybe I don't understand what's going on here, but I have a diagnosis, and this is going to guide my treatment. Now, treatment, I have as step eight. Treatments are going to vary. We do now have many, many more specific veterinary treatments for problems, especially when I first got out of vet school. We had veterinary-specific treatments, but not as many as we have now. So sometimes we would use human drugs, and sometimes still still we use human drugs to treat animals. But the treatment, the pet, the animal will be administered a treatment, or you will administer the treatment. And ideally, what is happening is the pet will respond positively to the treatment with no adverse events, no adverse signs, no adverse problems from the treatment. Let's say that the the dose is proper, um, the drug is proper, the route is proper, the um, owner-client is administering the drug properly at the prescribed frequency or times, and that the patient actually has the response that you're looking for. Now, you could have the proper diagnosis, you could have a treatment but for this patient, maybe there's adverse events. Maybe the animal's throwing up for whatever reason. Could be related to the drug, could not be related to the drug. You might have to, as the veterinarian, you might have to change the treatment. And hopefully you're getting the response that you're looking for. Or you're getting the response that you're looking for. If you go back to the um, first treatment, you're getting the response that you're looking for. But maybe you have to change the dose. Maybe you have to change the frequency. Maybe you have to change the route that the drug is being administered. You're really trying, obviously, to treat the animal, treat the patient, and treat what's going on with the patient. So sometimes you get, you have your differential list, and you run your testing, but testing doesn't confirm what you really think is going on. And that does happen. 
And it just depends on the stage of the disease. Uh, it could be the burden of the issue that the animal is, is having, whether it's really, to use a term, shedding, let's say, a particular virus at a particular time and that this test is going to pick up. You Veterinarians are always trying to treat the patient. Test results might not be confirming their diagnosis, but they're trying to treat the patient. And by treating the patient, you can guide your, your treatment properly, even though the test results might not be showing what you think is really going on. So let's just cover again. Let's just go back and hit all the highlights of this eight-step process. So the first step is client calls with what we're going to call the chief complaint. When you present the animal at the hospital, you're going to talk to the veterinarian. You're going to give them the history. The veterinarian is going to ask you multiple questions or maybe a few questions to try to get as quickly as possible to what they think might be going on. The veterinarian is going to complete a physical exam, put their hands on the animal, look at their body from stem to stern, top to bottom, however they do it. They're going to be developing during this entire time a list of differential diagnoses, which is a short list of problems that they think is, is likely the cause of, of this animal's clinical signs. They're going to recommend diagnostic testing. Diagnostic testing hopefully will be completed. Then the veterinarian at step six will be able to rule in or rule out potential diagnoses that they have developed. And hopefully if everything is successful and goes according to the plan that everybody likes, they'll get a definitive diagnosis. And then a treatment will be administered as the final step. And then the response will be monitored by the veterinarian and the owner. And often when, I should say probably every time I saw a patient and we gave a treatment, I always asked for the owner to call back. If there's, I would give um, instructions on how to administer the medication, how often to administer it, what the medication is, and signs to look out for if there's a problem. And to call immediately if there's a problem or maybe in a week to say, okay, how are things looking? So that way we can gauge, do we need to see the animal again? Or how often would we need to see the animal? Or do we need to change the treatment? And for certain problems, we can affect the cure which means whatever that problem is, is now eliminated from the animal, or sometimes we're going to have to administer treatments that maybe last month or months or years, and we can't actually cure the problem, but we can ameliorate, we can lessen, we can reduce the clinical signs that the animal has a better quality of life. And really that's what we're talking about is an animal's quality of life. And that also plays back to the owner's quality of life because if an animal is ill, the owner is going to be upset or the owner's family, the client's family is going to be upset and it's going to cause a certain level of stress. Yes, there might be financial stress, but also there's emotional stress with the sick animal and people are going to be sad, upset that their animal might be feeling pain and is it isn't the happy animal that they're, they're used to seeing. So this has been a... a stepwise discussion about how veterinarians make a diagnosis. So let me give you a couple examples from uh, animals that I have seen in the past. 
years ago, the beginning of my career, I worked at a emergency clinic. And an emergency clinic, I believe I worked from 7 to 7, if I remember correctly, uh, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So it was a 12-hour shift, which is not unusual for an emergency clinic. And you see in an emergency clinic cases that you rarely, if ever, would see, that's my experience, at a animal practice during the day. People, there's, there's night people, there's day people. <clears throat> Things happen at night very acutely, usually, that animals are having problems. Uh, so one very simple example, if I try to talk about um, making a diagnosis. So I had a patient come in. It was a Great Dane, very large animal. I believe it weighed about 120 pounds. Very large animal came in, and the owner had been walking in, and I think this was around 2 a.m. The Great Dane had a cut on its foot. Now, I didn't have to ask a lot of history. The owner had been walking the dog. I believe it got cut on glass, but I can't remember specifically that. And the patient was bleeding from the large pad on one of his uh, front feet. That's the carpal pad. It's the very heavy, uh, thick pad. And it had been sliced all the way through to where it was bleeding. So that was a very straightforward chief complaint, animals bleeding from its foot. I took a look at the animal. Uh, had the animal restrained, I saw that there was a slice, a laceration, a deep laceration in the paw. Talked to the owners about what it needed. During that time, I wrapped it up to minimize the bleeding, and then the animal needed a couple of sutures inside that paw with a bandage. So that was a very straightforward diagnosis. I did not need to have a list of five different things that I thought was going on, five differentials. Straightforward. Cut carpal pad needed to be sutured to stop the bleeding. I did it and it was successful. That one is very easy. Another example from the emergency clinic. Now, when people were calling the emergency clinic, I had an assistant who answered the phone. And it was a relatively slow evening. I remember this. It was not extremely late, probably 8, 9 o'clock at night. Somebody called up. Uh, they had a chihuahua as what they were describing with the clinical signs was shaking its head. And somehow it turned into an ear infection. So on our paperwork, the chief complaint was an ear infection. It was shaking its head. Okay. We told them, come on, sure, come on down. Animal is picked up and put on a table. I walk in, I see the animal, and the animal is shaking over its entire body, not just its head. So I can see also that's a female chihuahua and her mammary glands are somewhat distended. And the first question, one of the first questions I asked the owner who was standing there, I said, how long ago did she have puppies? And they told me it was seven or 10 days prior. Well, it turned out from the chief complaint of ear infection that this dog had hypocalcemic tetany. She was nursing. So the puppy, she was putting all of her energy into making milk and she was depleting her body of calcium and calcium is required for proper muscle function. So she didn't have enough calcium in her blood and in her muscles and in the cells of her muscles. So she, she was involuntarily trembling, shaking. 
it's called hypercalcemic tetany, where the muscles are sort of a jittery. You can see it versus an animal being scared. It's a, it's a different appearing patient. Now, again, that diagnosis, I went in thinking it was going to be a simple ear infection. I did my exam and I confirmed to myself that it was hypocalcemic tetany. Now, this was many years ago, so we didn't have a lot of testing available to us, but I did treat that patient with calcium and glucose intravenously, and the patient did fine. The tetany stopped, the muscle contractions stopped, and I sent the patient home to follow up with their local vet. So you can see that sometimes the chief complaint in every veterinarian that um, has seen an animal or animals has had chief complaints that do not match the actual problem the patient has. So an owner, when I talked about clinical signs, the owner, we're really trying to get you to describe things as accurately as possible. Now, the first step is over the phone. The owner's only actually maybe focused on what's abnormal to them, and that's the shaking of the animal's head. And then that's transferred communicated to the person on the phone at the animal hospital and they're maybe using, you know, they're trying to decipher what the owner is saying. So they're going to write down shaking head and then every vet's going to say, oh, it's probably an ear infection. So that case was the ear infection that turned into hypocalcemic tetany. And uh, these two examples are relatively straightforward. And those are, those are diagnoses that make a veterinarian um, feel good in a sense of it's very straightforward. You can figure it out. It's not a big mystery what's going on. On the other hand, I saw a chocolate lab. This was not in the emergency practice. This was in a general veterinary practice, a large, busy veterinary practice. And the owner, I believe, was a nurse. And the chief complaint was at this practice, we had uh, sheets of paper with patient information, client information, and the chief complaint. And this one said UTI, standing for urinary tract infection. Believe this owner was a nurse. And the dog was a great dog, chocolate lab, very happy, very friendly, sitting on the exam table. The exam table was three, three and a half feet off the ground, sitting there. And I walked into the room and what did I see? I see blood coming from every orifice of this animal, from the everywhere, from the vulva, from the eyes. I, I don't remember about the mouth, but this animal had red blood oozing from every body orifice that I could see. Uh, I completed my physical exam. I'm sure there was petechia hemorrhaging inside the mouth. I said to the owner, this is not a urinary tract infection. So I came up with a few differential diagnoses in my head. Sure, potentially it was a urinary tract infection where the bacteria had gone inside the animal's body and the animal became septicemic and that was causing all this bleeding that I was seeing. Uh, one of the questions you have to ask in those sorts of cases is, did the animal potentially get into any uh, rat poison? Because rat poison generally is causing hemorrhaging, and it's not uncommon for dogs to eat rat poison. Uh, so that's one of the questions you have to ask as an example. Um, 
I had to think about what would cause this animal to be bleeding, this oozing profusely from all of its body. And um, we ran some blood work and it turned out that the animal, I'll talk about blood work, I think, in another podcast, but this animal had a very low platelet count. And it turned out that the diagnosis was immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. Thrombocytopenia, let me break this down. Immune-mediated means it's coming from the animal's body. It's an internal issue. And thrombocytopenia means a low platelet count. Now, platelets are just one part of the cascade of clotting in our body and, and in animals' bodies. And when your platelet count is quite low, uh, we're talking 10,000 instead of it being 500,000 or 450,000 per unit of blood, it's easy for the capillaries to start leaking. And that's exactly what happened with this patient. So it was not a urinary tract infection. It turns out that it was immune-mediated thrombocytopenia and the animal needed immunosuppressive drugs in order to stop this process from going on. Now there can be causes, there can be other reasons or other diseases potentially or infections causing the immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. And that's a whole other set of diagnostic testing that needs to be done. But you can take someone with some knowledge like a nurse she can see only one problem, even though the animal actually is bleeding from, from other sites in its body, but it's peeing more frequently, and there was red blood in the urine. So that case was a more complicated case. <clears throat> and going through all the steps, ultimately we referred that animal to a specialist, an internal medicine veterinarian who specializes um, has advanced degrees to manage all of these cases, but these animals need longer term, could be a year, two years of immune uh, suppressive therapy, and then maybe trying to get to what's a di- what, what is a true cause, if, if that's actually possible. Because sometimes immune-mediated diseases, we don't have an easily observable cause. So I, I've just given you three interesting, at least from my perspective, examples from my career of how a diagnosis is actually made. So if you have any strange cases uh, for pets, I'd love to hear about them. If you have questions about the diagnosis process, um, I think as we go on here with the, in the future, I can talk about different diagnostic testing and some of the value that it offers and some of the difficulties associated with um, those diagnostic testing. And um, I think for now, that's going to be it. I thank you for listening to my podcast. It's been very enjoyable. I hope that you've learned something here, and I'll see you again. Thank you.